Have you ever had a memory of something that couldn't have happened to you? Have you ever recognized a place you'd never been to? What would you do if your own toddler said she had lived a life before this one? What if you looked into it and found your kid knew intimate details about someone who died long before they were born? I'm Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and actor who is relentlessly curious about the weird things that take place around us. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained, where each week we'll take a peek inside something mind-boggling and I'll be like, show me the receipts. This week, four stories about reincarnation, the phenomenon that is at once impossible to prove and, as you're about to find out, hard to deny. In 2009, four-year-old Ryan Hammonds from Muskogee, Oklahoma, started telling his mom he was homesick. He wanted to go back to his life in Hollywood with his fast cars and fancy life. He complained that his old house was much nicer than the one he lived in with his mother and father. He literally said, I can't live in these conditions. My last home was much better. He said he didn't understand why they couldn't have nicer things. When I wanted something, he told his mom, I just went down to the bank and got money for it. Guys, when I found our current apartment in Los Angeles, I took my then six-year-old to see it. There's a pool on the first floor, and I said, look, Monty, a pool. And he said, no hot tub? We had just moved from Bushwick, Brooklyn, where it had been nine degrees one day while we were walking to school. Kids, am I right? Ryan would not stop obsessing about Hollywood, and not about whatever Disney star was just starting to age out of believability as a high school student, but remained astoundingly popular with kids, but like the place itself, Hollywood, the land of movies and entertainment. How do you even know it was a place? Ryan's mom finally took him to the library to look at books about Hollywood, hoping he might just get it out of his system. Leafing through the pages, Ryan stopped on a still from the 1932 movie Night After Night. He pointed to one guy and said, that was my friend George. Then he pointed to another man in the photo and said, that's me. Ryan's parents were Southern Baptist, which, if you're not aware, doesn't exactly have room for reincarnation. But your four-year-old claiming to be a golden-era Hollywood actor is hard to square in any light. So Ryan's mom got in touch with Dr. Jim Tucker, a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia who studies claims of reincarnation. Tucker and his team are dedicated to finding the science behind reincarnation. Yes, there are people who believe in the science of reincarnation. Tucker and his predecessor at UVA, Dr. Ian Stevenson, have investigated nearly 2,500 claims of reincarnation. They have a rigorous vetting system and have been able to verify about 75% of the claims they research. When Dr. Tucker interviewed Ryan about his memories of being this random actor, Ryan told him he had danced on Broadway, toured the world on big boats, visited Paris, and had a lot of expensive cars and a big house on a street with the word rock in it. (laughs) 
The weirdest thing my kid said at that age was that he wanted to be a witch doctor when he grew up. Don't get me wrong, we were thrilled at the news. We just had no idea where he'd heard of that profession. He also probably couldn't have named the street he currently lived on, let alone one from another life. How this Midwestern kid even knew what Broadway was is weird. I'm from New York, and I didn't know what Broadway was practically until I was on it when I was nine. That was a shameless brag, and I do not apologize for it. Dr. Tucker had to dig to figure out who the actor Ryan pointed to in the photo was. The guy wasn't even listed in the credits for Night After Night. He was literally an extra. When I first heard this story, I was skeptical. And so was Dr. Tucker. Why would a background actor have such a fancy and glitzy life? By the way, being an extra today pays about $100 a day. Imagine what they paid in 1932. A corned beef sandwich and a hearty slap on the shoulder. Or ass, if you were a woman. It turned out the man Ryan identified as himself in the picture had been Marty Martin, a failed actor turned successful agent who did, in fact, have a fancy life and fast cars. He lived in a big house on Roxbury Drive. The street, Ryan said, had rock in its name. It turns out Marty had actually danced on Broadway. In 1925, he was in Gay Paris. He was billed as Marty Kalinske. Turns out he had changed his name from Morris Kalinske. I guess he wanted to sound less Jewish. Marty is not exactly the best bet for that. Anyway, he ended up changing it from Marty Kalinske to Marty Martin. Listen, do whatever it takes. I don't judge. Oh, and the other man in the picture, the one Ryan said was named George, that was George Raft. Quick, name a George Raft movie. Yeah, exactly. I had to IMDb him. It looks like he was a relatively successful actor in the 1930s, and he was on a TV show called I'm the Law. Ever heard of it? Me neither. You think George Raft was a household name in Ryan's house? I'm going to confidently say it was not. His parents and Dr. Tucker eventually took Ryan to meet Marty Martin's daughter, and Ryan was able to correctly identify more than 50 details from Martin's life. Going through photos with Marty's daughter, Ryan identified one of Marty's wives in a picture. He knew he'd been married four times. He talked about meeting Rita Hayworth. Now, granted, Rita Hayworth was a pretty big star. It's not inconceivable that Ryan had heard of Rita Hayworth before at four years old, in Muskegee, Oklahoma. But it's unlikely? I know adult people who barely know who Judy Garland is. Adult gay people. Ryan knew that Marty Martin had two sisters. He knew how many children Marty had. He knew how many times Marty had been married. Ryan bemoaned his early death, saying he died when he was 61. But according to Marty Martin's death certificate, he died at 59. Given how many facts Ryan had gotten right, Dr. Tucker was surprised by the age discrepancy and looked into it. He found out that Marty had lied about his age and was, in fact, 61 when he died. By the time he was 10, Ryan said most of the memories were fading. He's about 15 now. 
Even if he does still remember some of it, I can't imagine he opens with it. Like sitting at the food court in the mall with his friends, eating Panda Express, he's probably not regaling them with tales of my ties with Humphrey Bogart at Trader Vic's and how he once told Betty Davis she would never work in this town again unless she gave him a handy in the back of his Lincoln Continental. Know what I mean? More recently, his mother claims Ryan said that people are reincarnated in order to learn lessons they failed to learn in their previous life, and that he came back in order to learn not to be greedy and to put his family first. This sounds like revisionist history, if you ask me, which implicitly you did ask me when you pressed play on this podcast. Originally, she claimed that he complained about having to live in these conditions, and now suddenly he's saying life is not about material things and family is important. Maybe Ryan's message changed as Marty's reincarnated consciousness learned the lessons he was supposed to learn. Or maybe Ryan's parents, whose religion didn't allow for reincarnation, felt the need to attach Christian values to the experience to justify it. Either way, there's a 15-year-old in Oklahoma who might occasionally say, hey there, toots, when trying to ask a girl to the high school dance. Ryan's story is not by any means isolated. Meet Lee. When Lee was a toddler, he had night terrors and was afraid of being crushed to death, a pretty specific and macabre fear for a two-year-old. Lee's middle name was Cole, but every time he said it, it sounded like Co. His mom thought it was a speech impediment or just a simple mispronunciation, so she would sound it out carefully for him, and one day he said, no, it's Co. It was my mother's name. And his mom was like, uh, no, I'm your mom. My name is Jennifer. And he said, you're Jennifer? You're my daughter. Nothing like being well actuallyed by your toddler. Lee's birthday was June 20th, but he would insist his birthday was June 26th. When the family was set to celebrate his birthday on the 20th, he got really upset and kept pointing to the 26th on the calendar, saying, that's my birthday. Lee had two obsessions from an early age. First, he was fascinated by tractors, which is not in and of itself interesting. A lot of kids are interested in tractors. Kids are weird. Though, to be fair, tractors are pretty neat. Second, just like Ryan, Lee was obsessed with Hollywood. He talked about Hollywood so much that finally his parents asked him if he'd been an actor in a past life. I don't know if they actually believed in reincarnation to begin with or if they were just, like, teasing him. He told them he'd been a writer, which, honestly, is proof enough for me that this kid was telling the truth. Who would make up a past life as a writer in Hollywood? Quick, tell me who wrote Titanic. Any of the Avenger movies. Love Actually. See? No one knows. Literally, no one knows who wrote those movies. It's a mystery. So anyway, Lee's parents were like, oh yeah, you were a Hollywood writer? What'd you write, Sunset Boulevard? And he was like, ew, gross, no. I'm just kidding. I don't think he said that. I just like to imagine that even reincarnated souls can be bitchy. His parents listed some titles, and finally his dad said, Gone with the Wind? And Lee was like, yes, that was my movie. Gone with the Wind? I'm 41, and I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. 
And before all your shock and awe and telling me it's iconic and this is my field and blah, 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 I'll just tell you I'm not spending four minutes, let alone four hours, on a slavery wasn't that bad, the South will be reborn narrative. If I wanted to see that and really hear me on this, I do not. But if I did, I would go on Facebook. Anyway, where was I? My point was, how'd this pipsqueak know about Gone with the Wind? Like, I know it's a famous movie, but wouldn't a four-year-old be more likely to name, I don't know, the Minions? Gone with the Wind, it turns out, was written by a man named Sidney Coe Howard. Lee told his parents several facts about Sidney Coe Howard's life, including that he died when he was 48. All of these facts were confirmed. Sidney Coe Howard was born on June 26, 1891. Coe was his mother's maiden name. His daughter's name was Jennifer. Coe was 48 years old when he was crushed to death by a tractor at his home in Massachusetts. Shit's weird, right? Also, horrible way to die. Of course, Ryan and Lee's stories are anecdotal. It's impossible to verify 100% that these kids actually remembered another life, or if they were being coached by their parents for some nefarious reason. Maybe hoping for a movie deal? But why and how would these parents pick out Marty Martin and Sidney Coe Howard? Why not pick someone easier to research, like, I don't know, Natalie Wood or Elia Kazan? Maybe they think the more obscure the person is, the more believable the story? But also, anyone who would be willing to make their toddler fake being terrified of tractors is a serious dickhead. Also, toddlers aren't great at remembering their lines, so for Ryan and Lee to pass along this level of detail and repeat those facts over and over is really intriguing. Jim Tucker, who is an actual doctor and knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, believes these two kids were who they say they were. Most claims of reincarnation come from children between the ages of two and six years old. And most children who claim to remember past lives also report that the memories start to fade either once someone believes them or as they get older. Dr. Tucker thinks that having someone believe their claim is a validation and allows the child to release the memories. That's what seemed to happen with five-year-old Luke Ruhlman from Cincinnati. Luke's mom, Erica, reported that around the age of two, Luke started referring to a time when he was a girl. He said he had black hair and wore earrings. Luke said that when he was a girl, he lived in a city with tall buildings and he took the train. Apparently later he remembered that the city was called Chicago. Again, I just have to point out here what toddlers are typically like. Have you ever hung out with a two-year-old? They tend to have a pretty limited vocabulary, and it's usually words like shoe, bowl, and mama, not Chicago, especially when they live in Cincinnati. Most two-year-olds are too busy trying to eat the dog's food to retain facts about Chicago. You know what I mean? Luke named his toy ladybug Pam. His mom asked him why he chose that name, and he said he liked it. He then started calling everything Pam. 
Now, it's not impossible that he heard the name Pam before. It is the name of a pretty popular cooking spray, after all. But it's not a really common name these days. Also, kids at that age have a very fluid sense of what constitutes a name, usually pulling from what's right in front of them. Have you ever heard of a kid naming a toy Pam? My son named his favorite stuffed rabbit, Rabbit. Little kids don't tend to be super creative with this stuff. Luke's mother, Erica, said that when he was four, they were watching something on TV in which a building was on fire. Luke asked her to turn it off because it was scary, which, I mean, true. A building on fire is scary. Around this time, Erica finally asked Luke who Pam was. He said Pam was who he used to be, and that he had died, gone to heaven, met God, and come back as a baby. She asked him how Pam died, and he said in a fire, and motioned falling. Erica did some Googling and found out that a woman named Pamela Robinson had died when she jumped out of her window during a fire at the Paxton Hotel in Chicago in 1993. I'm going to briefly explain the situation surrounding this fire because it is infuriating. The Paxton Hotel was housing for lower-income people. One article described it as, quote, housing for transients, and I had to have someone physically hold me back from calling the author of that article and screaming at him that we don't call human beings transients. Asshole. Anyway. The neighborhood where Pamela lived was rapidly gentrifying, and somehow the Paxton Hotel was operating under many building violations, including that the fire doors had been removed weeks earlier to install new carpets and were never reinstalled. At least 19 people died in that fire. The Paxton was demolished. The condos built in its place go for half a million dollars today. You guys... I can't with this. I literally cannot. There was very little information about Pam to be found. The article Luke's mom found only devoted one sentence to her and said she was survived by her father and sister. And when she sought out Pam's surviving family to see if she could learn more about Pam, she found Pam's daughter, who wasn't mentioned in the news article about the fire. She reached out to Pam's daughter, who found out that Pam and Luke shared similar taste in music, which happened to be Stevie Wonder, which, to be honest, I mean, who doesn't love Stevie Wonder? If it was like drum-led Latin jazz from 1962, I might be impressed. But... Stevie Wonder? Also, Pam played the keyboard, and Luke's favorite toy was his toy keyboard. After talking to Pam's daughter, Luke stopped talking about Pam. His mom said it seemed like he had let her go. I don't know about this story. Dr. Tucker never took this one on. I don't know if he looked into it and deemed it unworthy or never even bothered. It's puzzling. On the one hand, it doesn't seem like Luke gave enough details about Pam's life to really make a convincing argument. The kid who said he'd been a Hollywood hotshot accurately remembered over 15 things about that dude's life. The one who'd written Gone with the Wind in a past life knew family members' names and how old he'd been when he died. 
Luke knew the name Pam and how she died and had a few things in common with a woman named Pam who died the way Luke claimed to have remembered. Those could be chalked up to coincidence. Stranger things have happened. On the other hand, I tried to Google what Luke's mom must have Googled, namely Chicago, Fire, and Pam. And aside from the handful of articles covering Luke's story, I found it almost impossible to find Pam's name in any article about the fire. So the possibility that Luke was coached is unlikely. And if they did coach him, there wasn't much information to be found anyway. I don't know. This one is weird. I don't know what to make of it. But I will say, which is what I say about a lot of these things, why would the parents make it up? You're listening to this, and you probably hadn't heard Luke's story before. Strange reincarnation stories about your kids do not a superstar make. So the motive remains mysterious for these parents. Again, most of these stories are about young kids remembering past lives. The last story I'm going to tell you is the exception to that rule. And I'll give you that one in just a minute. Friends, Embark is back. Embark is a dog DNA kit. It's basically your dog decoded. Embark helps a dog owner learn about their pup's breed, ancestry, health, traits, and you can even find your dog's relatives. We just got our dog Pops' health results back and I can easily have the report emailed right over to his vet so that we can talk about the best plan of care for Pops to ensure he lives his healthiest, best life. From breed traits to genetic risk factors for health conditions, Embark provides the resources to help you and your vet tailor care for your dog's specific needs. Developed by PhDs and veterinarians, Embark provides the most accurate breed identification and genetic health results and can identify over 350 breeds, types, and varieties. Learn your dog's inner secrets with Embark, the highest rated dog DNA test. Right now, Embark has an offer on their breed and health kit for our listeners. Go to EmbarkVet.com to get free shipping and save $50 off your Embark breed and health kit with promo code STRANGE. Visit EmbarkVet.com and use promo code STRANGE to save $50 today. In 1991, when he was about 43 years old, Jeffrey Keene and his wife Anna were in Pennsylvania for some antiquing. Weird fact about me, I love antiquing. I don't know what it is about going through dead people's old shit, but I find it very meditative. Maybe it's because I appreciate furniture that isn't made out of particle board. Anyway, on the drive, Jeffrey asked if they could make a stop at the Antietam battlefield, where a Civil War battle was fought in September of 1862. Marriage is about compromise, so they stopped. At the battlefield, Jeffrey hopped out of the car and his wife was like, "Mm, I'm good. I don't need to walk around a field where people died trying to keep the racists in the Union. Thanks. He walked out to a place called the Sunken Road, which apparently was a significant place in the Battle of Antietam. I'm not sure how they decide what's significant in a battle. It seems to me that anyone dying in service to their country is significant, but whatever. As soon as he got to the sunken road, Jeffrey said that he had trouble breathing. He felt very emotional and started to cry. 
He wondered if he was having a heart attack because men, especially men of Jeffrey's generation, are so unused to having feelings that when they do, they assume they're dying. Jeffrey then said he felt compelled to go to the gift shop. He bought a copy of Civil War Quarterly, which, in case you're wondering, is actually a thing that exists in the world. When he finally got back to the car, he told his wife he didn't want to talk about what he did or saw, which is a little Tony Soprano for me, but whatever. He would later say that he didn't want her to worry. In my mind, the conversation went like this. Are you okay? I'm fine. Okay, it's just, you look like you've been crying? No, I don't. I don't cry. Um, your eyes are puffy and red, and I literally see a tear running down your face right now. It's allergies! Leave me alone! About a year and a half later, at a Halloween party, Jeffrey sat down with a palm reader. The fortune teller asked him if he believed in reincarnation, and he told her about his experience at Antietam, which already seems like a weird exchange. Do you believe in reincarnation? Yes, one time I cried at an old Civil War battlefield. And I know that details often get left out in the retelling of stories, so it may not be that he told her about the thing that happened to him at Antietam as a response to being asked if he believed in reincarnation. Like, that might have come later in the conversation, but that is literally how Jeffrey retold it in a documentary. So maybe when Jeffrey didn't die by feeling, reincarnation was his best guess at what was happening. Regardless, Jeffrey said, yes, I believe in reincarnation, and one time I had emotions at the sunken road, and the psychic told him he died there in a past life. Guys, case closed, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if that's not proof that reincarnation exists, I don't know what is. Dude, you're not supposed to tell the psychic stuff. They're supposed to tell you stuff. Jeffrey basically fed all the information to this lady. Anyway. The palm reader told him he had been, quote, full of holes, which, I mean, yeah, if you die on a battlefield, I can pretty much guarantee that you're full of holes. And then she described whoever this dead soldier was. She didn't provide a name for some reason. The palm reader told Jeffrey that his former self hovered over his own dead body yelling, no, and Jeffrey blurted out to the psychic, not yet. He said he didn't know why he said not yet, but the psychic then said, yes, like not yet, because of course that is what she would say. After the palm reading, Jeffrey finally went and read the magazine he'd bought at the gift shop of the Antietam Battlefield site. In it, he found an article about General John Gordon, the colonel of the 6th Regiment of Alabama under General Robert E. Lee in the Civil War. Jeffrey claimed the exact spot where he had his experience, the Sunken Road, was where General Gordon's regiment fought during the battle. That's a pretty wide radius to call exact. Look, I know people can be hyperbolic, but saying you stood in the exact spot where literally 1,400 men fought is like me pointing to Brooklyn and saying, that is the exact spot I was born. The article described how Gordon apparently yelled, not yet, as a battle cry, which I gotta say is a weird choice. Like, never surrender or death first, I get, but not yet? 
just sounds so defeatist. Like, we're all gonna die, but not yet! Although, to be fair, Gordon himself was shot five times during the battle, including through the head, so not yet might have been all he could ask for. And here's the thing. He didn't die there. He fucking survived getting shot in the head and then continued to serve in the army, which is like, really, dude? I get an email with bad news and I'm going to have to take a nap for the rest of the day. This guy is like, I can take more. I guess he really loved slavery. So General Gordon didn't die at the sunken road. The palm reader was wrong. I know, I know. I am as shocked as you are. So after discovering General Gordon, Jeffrey started going through his Rolodex of memories and connecting them to his former self. He remembered an incident he'd had at midnight on his 30th birthday when, for no reason, his face and jaw began to hurt. He said it felt as though he'd been shot through the face. Shot through the face, you guys. He had a pain in his jaw, and he said he felt he'd been shot through the face. Not punched, not like, oh, God, ouch, my jaw. Shot through the face. When he'd learned about John Gordon, Jeffrey pointed out that Gordon was 30 during the Battle of Antietam and that he was shot through the jaw. Jeffrey said that he bore a resemblance to John Gordon, and there have been experts who have agreed and disagreed with this. Frankly, a lot of white dudes look alike. You can at me on that one. I will stand by it. My partner can comb his beard in a certain way, and if we took a picture of him in sepia tones, you would swear he was a general in the Civil War. Jeffrey wrote a book about his experience entitled Someone Else's Yesterday, which was a finalist for the 2005 COVR Visionary Award. I don't know what the COVR Visionary Awards are, but as someone who has won awards from random organizations no one has ever heard of, I feel the need to acknowledge it. Beyond that, I, I don't know what to tell you about the Confederate soldier turned antiquer. So there it is. Four stories of people who claim to remember a life before their own. Four people who claim their souls existed before their own bodies did. It seems unbelievable. I mean, especially that last one seems unbelievable. I literally don't believe it. But the other three? I don't know, man. How do you explain it? And I mean, what is a soul anyway? Where does it live in the body? What does it look like? Is it real or is it just what we cling to in order to quell our absolute terror of death? If we accept the idea of a soul, then why not entertain the idea of reincarnated ones? Then again, if our souls keep coming back again and again, how come we haven't figured out life better? Like, why don't reincarnated souls ever speak up and say, no, 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 war has literally never solved anything, guys. I learned that the last time around when I was Hitler. Also, Jews are totally fine, guys. Chill out. Maybe pacifists are all reincarnated souls trying to teach us from their past mistakes. And the rest of our souls are just too young to heed their advice? It's possible. Maybe my soul, like myself, is just so, so young and innocent. And stupid. 
Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, the vanishing drowning men. For years, fit college-age men have been vanishing, somehow lured away from groups of friends and then found dead in nearby bodies of water days or weeks later. Some people think it's a serial killer, but I'm not so sure about that. I'll tell you a few of the most terrifying stories and give you my take on what's going on. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Jess Watford. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't, skip it. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod, and check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>